Andrew. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Keep it real with Khadija. Finally, I've got you on my podcast. I'm sorry, both of our diaries keep crossing over. Um, so, I mean, we've I first reached out to you because you are Lord Sugar's publicist, right? Is that the right word? That's publicist? Right, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you've got a company called Frank PR. So I think the best thing for the audience listening is for you to tell us a little bit about what you do. Okay, so I am a PR and I've been in the PR industry for 25 odd years. Set up Frank about 20 years ago. We're a consumer PR agency and we represent a whole host of brands ranging from sort of big international companies, the sort of Coca-Colas, VWs, Huawei's of this world, down to smaller entrepreneurial startups um, and everything in between, really. And the kind of stuff we do is media relations, digital marketing, events, experiential. And currently, we're all in lockdown, working from our own homes and trying to keep things going. Um, what a crazy start, time. Yeah, it's crazy times. I mean, it's... It really is, to use the phrase of the month, unprecedented times. Mm-hmm. And we're all uh, adapt and get used to this new normal. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I'm and speaking how, from home. Yeah. And how are you feeling about that? So obviously we're recording this so that the audience listening know we're recording it while we're in isolation. Um, a lot of business people that I speak to and entrepreneurs that I'm networking with are suffering during this time. Some are being super positive and using this time to educate themselves and do things that maybe they didn't have time to do before. But the podcast is called Keeping It Real. So in a very real response, how are you feeling about it all? And by the way, we are partial to the odd swear word if you feel like you need to add it in. I'll try, I'll try to behave myself. <laughs> so, I keep it real as well. You know, we called Frank, Frank, because it was all about being open, honest, no bullshit and... Love that. The ethos of the company. So I think, look, it's totally uncertain at the moment. I think for us as an agency, our client base is pretty diverse and it's impacted some clients a lot more than others. So clients in the tourism industry, travel industry, um, sports betting industry, events hit you know, like they couldn't believe and effectively their businesses are just on pause and it's about survival. Um, we've got other clients where they're in the supermarket area, the food area, um, and then clients in the middle who are just sort of a bit not sure about what's going on, trying to adapt. Um, and we're doing a lot of work with them in terms of corporate and social purpose, trying to act in the right way, be responsive to how their customers are feeling at the moment. But for us as a company, I wouldn't go as far as to say optimistic. I don't think anyone can be particularly optimistic. Um, we're realistic about it. And I think you know what we've kind of faced in the last two, three weeks very much kind of one step forward, one step back. So we've got clients that have paused budgets, stopped spend. We've got other clients that have increased budget and spend. And then we've got new clients that suddenly need our help, whether that's sort of 
consultancy, helping them guide them through how to deal with this from a PR perspective. So it, it's really mixed. And then, of course, we're trying to deal with the fact that, you know, I've got 50 staff all working from their bedrooms, kitchen tables, how to keep them motivated, how to ensure that the service levels that, you know, we're used to delivering aren't adversely affected. I mean, it's, it's a headache. And I've been working every hour of the day and night because I think one of the things when you lose that sort of office environment that I found is I can sit at my computer at sort of eight in the morning and next thing I know it's eight at night and I haven't eaten lunch and haven't paused for air and that for me is sort of a personal challenge but it's uh, I don't like to use the word exciting because it's sort of not exciting but when you've been doing the job for a long time, anything that takes you into new areas of sort of that make you feel slightly uncomfortable that aren't that you can't kind of do with your your eyes closed is actually you know quite satisfying from a professional and a personal point of view. But I wouldn't like to say that I'm enjoying it because it's a lot of headaches. But it's certainly yeah. to test your brain power in terms of. None of us have ever dealt with this. No one is an expert in how to deal with what's going on in the world. So you're just trying to use your expertise and your knowledge to adapt to something that, you you know, two months ago, none of us could have ever possibly imagined what sort of state the world would be in at the moment. Um, look, giving me the time to, I guess, give back a little bit. So with the sort of, Time that you do have, I've been trying to help advise charities, um, individuals, entrepreneurs that you know are trying to do good, trying to survive, trying to make sense of it themselves. So I found that quite sort of personally rewarding, um, being able to do that side of it as well. Do you know what I love? What you said because as an entrepreneur, I definitely think this is a time like. Yeah, it's a little bit shit. And um, this is my third week in isolation because I'm expecting my third child. So I'm high risk. uh, So I can't go anywhere. And this is not what I'm used to. My life is very active. I'm out and about. I'm always networking. I'm speaking at engagements. So this has been very bizarre um, for business and mentally, I think. And also, I'm not really... um, I'm not a lover of domesticated work, like laundry and cleaning and all that stuff, which I'm finding myself doing loads of and I hate it. Um, And and we can't have any cleaners come in because of isolation. So, yeah, it's not great. I mean, first world problems and all. Um, But it is a challenge. And entrepreneurs, I think, uh, very forward thinking entrepreneurs, they kind of like this challenge in a very... um, I wouldn't like to say sadomasochistic, but in a bit of a twisted way, we like it because it's uh, it's shaking us all up. Like, what else can we do outside the box that we don't ordinarily do or the service we offer? Is that what, is, are you looking at other ways now that you can work more effectively within your business? I think, look, I see a lot of people talking about the opportunity to have headspace and think clearly you know, we've got more time. I personally haven't found that. I mean, I've actually struggled to just carve out time for myself and my kids. Um, But what I have found is it's an opportunity to connect with people in different ways. And I hated video calls a month ago. I don't love them now. 
now, but they do offer a different sort of connection. So with my own team, I know what their houses look like. I know who works yeah. from the kitchen, who works from their bedroom. I'm asking them about their weekends, not that they've got anything particularly exciting to say about their weekends. Yeah. And with clients, you know, what, what I have tried to do is sort of structure my day a little bit. So any phone calls that I need to make, I store them up to sort of three in the afternoon and then I go for my allocated walk. Um, and, you know, yesterday I left the house at three. I walked seven miles by the time I'd got off the phone. A um, little bit longer than the recommended half hour or whatever you're allowed. But <laughs> I never normally spend that much time actually talking and listening to people. So I have seen benefits from it, from, yeah. from that as I say, the bit I struggle with a little bit is people saying, you know, this is a time for clarity and to think. I mean, maybe that will come in time. At the moment, it all feels pretty chaotic. And I think running a business, you know, first thing you've got to do is get into survival mode and make sure you keep your costs kind of firmly in check. Make sure you've got your cash flow as strong as it can possibly be. Then you get into the kind of dealing with shit phase, as I like mm-hmm. to call it. Yeah. Clients that uh, have issues, crises, and pausing their businesses. And you know, I think where we're sort of getting to in week three is trying to make sense of the, the new normal. And I think as week by week goes past, you know, we're, we're going to all adapt our behaviours and what I'm starting to see is clients who two weeks ago were just completely blinded in the headlights and now starting to see, okay, we've got a business, we've protected it, we want to come out of this strongly and Mm -hmm. use this period to not necessarily move forward or make money, but to put ourselves in the strongest position so we can come out of the traps flying and you know, that's, you know, we have one new clients and one new bits of business from existing clients who have already started to recognize that. And I think as time goes on, there'll be more of those opportunities. There will, there will also be, unfortunately, clients that have sort of clung on and can't hold on anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, because the longer this goes on, the harder it is for, for most businesses. So yeah. the, the, whole, the whole mood of the nation is adapting Changing. almost day by day, um, yeah. which is quite interesting. You know, you can't – we wrote um, a sort of presentation for our clients about a week ago on sort of how to market and adapt in, in this world. And to be honest, by the time it had gone through the two or three people that wanted to read it and put their two pence worth of comment in – it almost felt like it was so dated we had to start again. I mean, I've never seen a sort of landscape in terms of public mood move so quickly as it has done the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And have you had any um, employees fearful of losing their job or um, worried that you're going to now downscale? Um, or, yeah, or any clients that are thinking, you know, I, I think my business is going to go under, so I'm not sure I'm even going to be able to, I don't know if there's any point in me having a publicist anymore if my business can't churn out any work. Have you had any, you know, serious concerns like that? People seriously worried about what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to be an idiot not to be worried. Um, 
because there's so much to worry about. So on the staff side, we've done as much as we can to reassure people. We'd, we're always, as a company, I'm, I'm a real firm believer to be completely open and honest with staff. So yeah. try to sort of maintain communication and we have a daily management call at nine o'clock every morning. Then the sort of team heads go off and brief their individual teams on what's going on. Um, there are a few people that have sort of come to me and said, you know, have I got a job and, you know, I'm worried. You know, on the client side, clients are pretty quick to make decisions, especially the sort of big corporates that comes from above, just cut all non-essential spend. Mm -hmm. uh, so some of our clients, you know, particularly in sectors that, as I, as I mentioned earlier, like the travel industry or retail that just don't yeah. have businesses, you know, they put us on pause and that's totally fine. But we've already seen clients start to come out of the phase that even though they, they might not be operating, they still have a brand and they've spent years and years on their reputation and they want their voice to be there so that they're still in people's minds. You, you shouldn't just go dark in this period because yeah. consumers need reassurance and satisfaction. Um, and that's changing as well. So what we've done with staff is reallocated people that were working on businesses that are quarter onto the ones where there's big demand and an increased workload. And fortunately, that sort of seems to have balanced things out. And, you know, it's, it's a bit harder at the moment to get a grip on who's sort of servicing clients to what, what level. And there's a big level of trust involved. Yeah. But by doing daily calls and speaking to people, you just get a real sense of, you know, who's doing what and who's got time and how you can sort of swap people around. I think you just have to be as flexible as you can. And we don't, we operate very much on a trust basis. Yeah. You know, it's not sort of clocking in, clocking out. Mm. So we don't use timesheets. I'm not a believer that our services should be paid for in the hours that we spend. It's about what we achieve and the value that we add. So it does make it slightly more difficult. You can't just sort of look at a spreadsheet. You have to, you know, normally I'm in the office. You can almost sort of look out Sense. into the floor. And just yeah. sense the people that are going home, like bang on the dot at five, <laughs> people that are there at nine at night. You kind of don't have that sort of luxury anymore. So you have to be a bit more in tune with what's going on. And I think, you know, what I've realized, the key to it is just talking to people as much as possible. And yeah. of course they're going to be worried. It's, you know, they can see that their, their job has changed dramatically in the matter of a couple of weeks. And I think. Mm. Running a company, I'm used to change. I thrive on that. Uh, you know, if, if it doesn't change, I get bored. For someone who's worked on an account and a client for years, and then all of a sudden that goes quiet and they're being asked to help out on something that they're less familiar with, a new client, new project, it, it can be unsettling. But it's been amazing the sort of resilience and the team spirit that, you, you know, we've sort of seen return back to us and you know no one is taking the piss and sitting there and watching Netflix all day you know everyone's yeah. working really hard and it's a kind of we're all in it together and you you know you do sense that and it's made me really proud you know something maybe that I've taken for granted in the past but yeah. how much people 
do have a pride in who they work for, you know, Frank as a company, but the clients that they're representing and really going the extra mile to try and help people out. And of course, you know, our clients are affected and they're all people with families and mortgages yeah. and responsibilities. So there's a real um, human level to what you're doing as well as a professional level. You're normally, you know, you have a client and you know, sometimes you know them on a personal level when you've worked with them a long time, but often it's sort of just straight down to business, not even a kind of, hi, how are you? And now, you know, we're getting to know our clients and building relationships on a completely different sort of level. So I hope when we come through all of this, it's strengthened our relationships. And I think what you see is the people that behave well with some degree of integrity and authenticity will come out of this really, really well. And there would also be villains in this, the companies that put profit before people that don't look after their suppliers. You know, my sort of, our rule really is be nice and don't forget that you're dealing with people, whether they're your staff, your clients, your customers, you know, these are people and everyone is affected. Everyone is a bit freaked out by what's going on at the moment. And you shouldn't ever forget that and just, in times of adversity, you have to realise that we're all people and we're all in this pretty unique situation that has impacted everyone sort of emotionally. And it's not just business as normal. It's you have the rules have changed a little bit and you need to show empathy and understanding to everyone's personal and professional situations and probably take a little bit more time to think through your actions before you just do stuff. Um, I love that. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it was obvious. It's human. But, yeah, it, yeah. It definitely there's a, it, it's a, a bit of a reality check, right? Realising that now when you're isolated and you're at home and you can't even go and get a Nando's, that's a bit of a reality check. Like, hold on a minute, you know, we are just human and naturally... I love that your company is called Frank for that reason. I didn't actually know that. So that's a great little nugget. You're, you're Frank, you're to the point. I mean, just listening to what you're saying about your business and how passionate you are about it. I'm already like, I want to work with you. <laughs> Can I have a job for me? When you recruit it again, um, not at the moment. We're holding on to what we've got, Khadija. Um, No, but honestly, thank you for being so authentic because it's true. So um, let's get a little bit of history then about you, Andrew. So, how long ago did you set up Frank? Set up Frank 20 years in September. Wow. And you're still as passionate when you speak about it now as at the beginning, right? I can, well, I can see the passion. Yeah, I think, look, you have an emotional connection to something that you start and grow, and I don't think that emotional connection will ever end. So, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I love PR as an industry. I love what I do. And as long as sort of I'm always learning, earning, having fun, you know, those are the sort of three key principles that get you out of bed in the morning. And I... I I always feel just very grateful that I do something that I genuinely enjoy, even in the shittiest, darkest moments. Yeah, you've got to enjoy it, yeah. Because there's plenty of people that don't. Um, So I never take that for granted. So we started 20 years ago, um, just a couple of us, and then we built it 
since then, um, we try and do great work and that's what keeps us fresh and relevant and winning new clients and various plaudits and and being frank and honest and real and down to earth, right? Because these are all traits that often in in business, there are a lot of uh, stuffy-nosed, up-their-own-backside people, let's be honest. And I've met a lot of them. And actually, it's very refreshing when you meet people who are genuinely hardworking people that want to deliver a great service. They want to employ people and and give people a job. And they want to deliver, just deliver what they love and what they're passionate about. And I love that. Like, it's so authentic. So what did you do before, Frank? So you started it 20 years ago. What made you fall into starting your own company? So I originally, when I was, I wasn't particularly academic, um, still not particularly academic. Um, but I, I, my art teacher at school said to me, he thought I'd be good in advertising. And I kind of clung on to that idea, really in the lack of anything else that I thought I wanted to do. So when I finished education, I tried to get a job in advertising. It was pretty tough and there's sort of arduous processes of application forms and multiple interviews. and. I was just getting a bit bored and, I guess, fed up by it. So someone said to me, oh, why don't you try PR? It's similar to advertising. So I wrote to a load of PR companies. I got offered a work placement, a sort of free sort of work experience. And I thought, you know, that's not a bad way to fill my time whilst I carry on applying for ad jobs. And I started at an agency called Lynn Franks. And... Very, very famous agency in the sort of 80s and 90s. It was the agency that Absolutely Fabulous was based on. And oh, wow. It was a bit like that. It was totally crazy. And, <laughs> you know, I was very lucky. When I look back, it was such an unbelievable company. Um, so I stayed at Lynn Franks for three years. And after three years, they sold the company to a big international agency called Ketchum. Um, and I went with them when it moved and I was looking after all of their sport and entertainment clients, had some brilliant clients like England football team, Carlsberg, Puma, doing some wow. really good work. And then the MD of Lynn Franks, who left at the time when it got sold, approached me and said, do you fancy setting up a PR agency with me? Um, and I kind of said, no, nah, I don't, don't think I'm ready yet I've only done five years you know not quite sure I'm experienced enough I was 26 at the time um what a compliment what a compliment though five years 26 and and they want to start yeah you know what he said to me which I'll, I'll always remember was you know you never ever feel ready for something and just go for it and you know the way my mind worked was what's the worst that can happen? You know, it doesn't work out and I'll go with my begging bowl back to my old company or I'll find another job. Like, I didn't really have much to lose. Wasn't married, didn't have kids. You know, it sort of was about as risk-free as it could be. So I went into it, but never really thinking beyond survival. I didn't kind of have this vision would grow it into an amazing company. It was just like, hope it works to some degree is my sort of pessimistic <laughs> out on it. And then, so that's where the name Frank came. It was like the open, honest, no bullshit part, but also a bit of a play on the Lynn Franks 
heritage. And Lynn Franks, you know, was one of the best, most creative, brilliant agencies of its time. And we wanted to keep that spirit alive, which essentially had been lost by the fact they'd been bought by this big global company. So yeah. that, that's where it all started. So you started together. So at that point, I guess, you knew about PR, but you didn't really know about business. And the CEO knew about business. And was there a difference in what you both wanted to achieve? Did you uh, just want to have something where you could go to work every day and make sure that you did a good job? Or did the CEO... Was there any controversial views in terms of what you both wanted to achieve with the new business? Not really. Actually, when he, so when he sold, when he left Lynn Franks, he went out of PR um, and went into the internet, which was kind of the fashionable thing to do in the late 90s. And originally the concept was he wanted to be kind of hands-off and I'd run the day-to-day client side of things, which was always my strength. And very, very quickly into starting the business, he realised how much he missed PR and sort of started to get a lot more involved. But we always had very complementary skills. So I think, you know, with with anything like this, when you have a partnership, it's about trust, but it's also about balancing out each other's weaknesses. Yeah. Um, and that sort of stayed true throughout, you know, our, our time working together. We've, we've always kind of got on well because... He's really good at the bits. I'm not good at, and vice versa. So, um, and you're still you're still together now, twenty years on. Yeah, we're still together now. It's a sort of slightly different um, working relationship. He does um, a day and a half a week, so he's not kind of there the whole time. But it's we're still working. I mean, we get on. You know, we weren't friends before, but when you work with someone and have known someone for so work, long, yeah, of course you know them, their families. You know, it's becomes a friendship yeah through, so. oh how, what an amazing story okay so you're still in partnership with the person that you went into business with 20 years ago that in itself is amazing um so let's talk about uh the man that actually well how i knew about you is mr lord sugar himself the business don that is lord sugar so how long have you been um I don't know, managing PR for Lord Sugar? I have worked with him for about 19 years. Wow. One of our very early clients. Um, It all started early days of Frank. We had a phone call from a marketing director who actually was also called Alan, but not Alan Sugar, from Amsterdam. Um, and I don't know if, if you know the history, but Nick Hewer, who was on The Apprentice and now of Channel 4 Countdown fame, he, yeah. he was with his PR. Um, he retired. And when he retired, I think they found a PR company to help them with a product launch. And we got this phone call saying, not going particularly well. We've been recommended to you. Do you think you could step in and help out? Um, and we put together a plan. They were speaking to a few different agencies. And for us, this was a massive opportunity. Um, put together a plan. We we're probably a little bit over the top and they just needed something pretty straightforward and basic. And we'd given them this 
overcomplicated, really ambitious, creative sort of plan. I didn't know Lord Sugar at the time, didn't know his style of kind of no-nonsense, um, <laughs> a bit elaborate. And they said, you know, we got this phone call and this marketing director said, um, look, we like you guys, but this not what we need. We just really need some basic stuff and we're going to go with another company who just gave us a really straightforward plan and maybe we'll chat in the future. And never being one to take no for an answer, we just begged. Like, there was not a lot of dignity to it. <laughs> we just sort I of love did. that. Please give us the chance. You know, we, we know we can do this. And maybe he felt sorry for us, but we ended up doing this job. Um, and I didn't really have much to do with Lord Sugar to begin with. To be honest, I kind of figured the best thing to do was just stay in the background and do a good job and maybe he'll notice us. But, um, and he did, you know, over time, I can't really remember how quickly he sort of cottoned on to who we were and what we did but we ended up getting more and more involved with him personally um, and his various businesses and then 2005 the apprentice came along and you know he was already a very well respected um, businessman very well known but this took it to a whole different level and you know, I've worked on The Apprentice for every series since it started, so 15 so far. I think you were series 13, if I remember rightly. Is that right? And I've been your favourite candidate of all time, is what you were about to say, right? You're all my favourites. <laughs> individuals. So That's amazing. So now part of my job working with Lord Sugar is to, once the winner comes out the end of the process, is to help them make that transition from TV show personality candidate to credible business person and help them set up their business, PR their business, and help them make money. So, which has been amazing. I mean, for me, for someone, you know, I said to you earlier, I love to challenge myself the way I think and do new things. There's this real sort of thrill, which I know Lord Sugar shares, of you don't quite know who's going to come, come along each year and, when I think of, particularly in the last seven, eight years, where the business he's invested in, as opposed to pre previously before that, the winner would get a job within one of his companies. About seven or eight years ago, they changed the format so that the winner would get a 50-50 investment with him yeah. into their business. And there's this real excitement. You don't know what that business is going to be, who the person is going to be, what stage it's going to be at, what industry it's in. Um, and he shares that excitement as well. He loves keeping busy and doing new things. And when I look at the sort of diversity of different businesses from sort of non-cosmetic procedures to makeup brushes to recruitment businesses, swimwear. Yeah. I mean, Big it's, up to Sean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just been mad. It's been such a brilliant journey. And it's, it's amazing to see, like, year on year, The Apprentice, like, stronger than ever and getting these amazing audiences. But also just seeing how it inspires young people. My stepson's 16. All his friends just love it. And they idolise Lord Sugar and, like... 
because for them they're learning and they don't even realize they're learning but yeah. all the lessons that you get through that show is really inspirational i think it's been responsible for inspiring so many young entrepreneurs to follow their dreams and set something up and that's that's why i love being in, involved in that particular part of his business he's obviously got other businesses that are established and and also kind of equally exciting but with him yeah. there's never a moment he's one of these people that just doesn't sit still and you kind of never quite know what's going to happen day by day yeah. with him which i love you- and i love the fact that you know he was 73 earlier this week and shows no sign of slowing down and uh, that like is so inspiring i hope i still have that energy and vigor for business and being entrepreneur and entrepreneurial when i sort of reach that age you just realize for him it's not about money it's about keeping his mind busy and just doing what what he loves and i just personally find really really inspiring I love that. Well, as a candidate on the show, I now speak regularly at schools and it's crazy how many students watch it, you know, from little year sevens with their backpack that's too big for them all the way up to like college level. And I'm going to schools. I live in Lincolnshire. So I work with a company called Links Hire and I go to a lot of local schools here. Um, I'm further afield. I've been to Barnsley and various different ones. But yeah, so I, I go to all these schools and I find it, I could be in a boardroom doing a corporate speaking engagement and people in there have watched the show. They love the show. You know, they might be employees and they want a side hustle and they say to me, you know, how can I start up something on the side? And I'm a big advocate for a side hustle. A lot of entrepreneur speakers say, sack your boss. Well, actually, business is really bloody difficult. And I think that's awful advice don't sack your boss actually if you've got a stable income the hardest thing for me in business was spending four years paying everybody else and not paying myself so when i go now and i speak i say you know you can have a side hustle start with that when it gets to the point that it's overtaking your income then you make that decision um but i just find it so inspiring how everyone from a little year seven all the way up to boardroom level watched the show loved the show nine million people watch it on average you know it was a very crazy surreal time to come off that show i went to to Dubai at the end of Feb, three people recognized me with their mum in Dubai and my children were there like, mummy, they know you from The Apprentice. I think what I have found a little bit bizarre and almost a little bit sad is when you come off the show, you have this instant buzz. And so the show finished airing for me in December 2018. So it's been the last 18 months of some great speaking gigs and events and this. And I guess this is where PR comes in because it gets to a point where you don't want to sound like a broken record, like, oh, I'm Khadija from The Apprentice five years ago, you know? But at the same time, you do almost want to hold on to a little bit of that, not stardom necessarily, but just people kind of knowing who you are, what you do, buying your services. Um, I think the more PR you have, the more marketing you have, the more people know about you, the easier it is to sell your products or services. So what does... Yeah, what's, what I was going to ask you is, what does someone do when they get to that stage, a.k.a. me, where you're like, do you know what, I, I don't want people to forget who I am, so what do we do now? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I speak to a lot of candidates that get to various stages in the process and just try and offer them advice, you know, as a PR professional, but also, I mean, this sort of 
relatively unique position is I've seen every single candidate from the last 15 years go off and have varying degrees of success. And you do see that people go on the show and they get a taste of being recognised on the streets and they like it. It's, it's like a nice feeling, but that is short-lived. And, you know, the minute I'm a celebrity heirs or Big Brother or Love Island or whatever it might okay. be, for the next reality stars on the scene. A few people do go on and make media careers, but very, very few, if you look at the history of the show. What I say to people is, you know, you've had a platform where you've been seen for 12 weeks on primetime BBC. If you want to become a business person, now act like a business person. Make the most of that window of fame but start to focus on your business and use that fame to elevate your business because it's highly unlikely you're going to become a TV personality, a celebrity. You know, yes, a few of them do, but I've seen some really talented business people sort of Waste forget they've actually got a brain and they're more yeah. interested in getting their picture in the sun or the style than they are in actually focusing on a business. Whereas the ones that have done the best have used that window of fame to market a business that has got more longevity. And I think, you know, it's the same with any reality show to a degree. Any idiot can make a lot of money in a short window, but you have to be bright to make that last. And really the best way to make it last, if you're serious about business, and you haven't just gone on the show to try and become a fan. Yeah. Then focus on your business and stay true to the personality you showed and people sort of developed a warmth and a empathy towards on the show, but translate that into your business. I guess my point is because I have never cared about fame. I've always said I want to be rich. I don't care about being famous. However, what I've realized since the show is without a platform, or without X amount of followers, or without X amount of exposure, your business is also affected. So I think my, not my argument, but my point almost is that surely a business or a business person needs some level of that want to be known. Because otherwise, there's no point having a great product if nobody knows about the product. So there's no one in my in my in my situation. Off the back of the show, I closed my cleaning company. I set up Keep It Real with Khadija. Keep It Real with Khadija is a podcast. I offer motivational speaking, consultancy, and mentorship. I have had great success since the show. I've been able to pay myself for the first time in four years. Uh, really good money as well. I'm happy. I'm living great. Um, and I get to do exactly what I love, which is amazing. Equally, the route that I've decided to go down, and I guess it's the same with Sean and all the winners, um, if you've got a product and you've come off a show like that, surely keeping yourself relevant through PR is going to help your sales because the more people know who you are and people buy from people, they will buy your product. So I used to think that people that came off the show and got an agent, I think the last series, most of them had an agent. Um, um, none of us really did, but the last series, they were all at it, all over, and good for them. I think I came off the show thinking, 
yeah, I, I, I want to focus on my business. But what I'm maybe regretful for is that I didn't push myself more in the PR marketing world to make sure that that stayed a little bit longer. It's like we've got a sell-by date. And if you don't keep working at it, you're going to go off. And that will reflect in your sales of your business is what I think. Is that is that, do you think that the PR obviously is helping bring in more sales? I, look, I get what you're saying. I think the key to it is the is relevance and it's not doing pr for the sake of pr it's there comes a point where no one cares you were on the apprentice two years ago we've forgotten yeah about that. exactly 32 more candidates since you who are more relevant yeah so what do you stand for and so i don't know like maybe look at someone like michelle jubilee for example who was series two of the show and has gone into a similar sort of area as you in terms of you know she's she's a commentator on the pledge on sky she's she's done all sorts of sort of presenting and opinion-led stuff off the back of the show but she's built up that credibility to do that and she's now established a profile for herself that is almost entirely independent of the apprentice i think I know it was a lot further back than you, but probably people don't even really know, remember, or care that she was on The Apprentice because she's an excellent broadcaster and commentator, and that's what they value her as. And I think that will be the same with you. No one cares if you're on The Apprentice if you're a good podcast host, but you do have that advantage that you've got that bit of profile that you can leverage um, to use it. But when, you know, with all the winners that come off the show, you know, really what we're trying to do is build their profile in relation to their business, you know. Not, not, them, as, not them on TV, yeah. No, I mean, there is an awareness because they were on The Apprentice, but actually, you know, if you're Sean, it's about having great swimwear. If you're um, Karina, it's about having a bakery that produces great product. If you're Tom, it's about great inventions. If you're Ricky, it's about being a great recruiter. But doesn't mean you can't use your elevated you've got an edge in that people know your name or have an awareness of your name mm. but if you abuse that and start to like the sound of your own voice and you know it's not about getting papped coming out of a nightclub or going to a red carpet premiere people don't really care about that but they do care if you can use your profile to adapt it to your business and and what you're doing and that's the sensible long game because for you, you know, there will be another batch of apprentice candidates and another... Oh, no, by the way, by no means am I trying to cling on to apprentice fame, no. My point is that I never have never paid for PR. I've never paid for marketing, really. I've always done it organically. My LinkedIn after the show went crazy. Everything yeah. I do is like a genuine business person. You know, my mentees, they're not paying me because they saw me on The Apprentice. They're paying me because I started a business with £20 and bought it six figures. They're paying me for my knowledge, which I completely agree. But then I also speak to a lot of business people who now my mindset has changed. When I had my cleaning business, never paid a penny for a mentor. I never paid a penny for marketing. I tried to do everything myself. Now I've become of the mindset, I guess, since the show, that if you can have a company that helps you with your accounts or a company that manages your social media or a company that can push your PR, I guess I'm almost plugging your services in a way because I think it is, I think what, what people don't get 
taken that from a struggling person that started a business with absolutely no idea about business with just 20 pound and I googled a cheap business to start to now being on a show like that which I call business rehab because it's so intense and you learn so many things about business and networking with amazing people in business you realize that in a way if you people don't know who you are then it's much harder to try and sell your services and product. I thought getting in my local paper in 2017 was a big deal. Then once you've been on a show like that and you've come off, you're like, hold on a minute. If I want to be a multimillionaire or a billionaire, I need more exposure. That's not going to happen by just being in the local newspaper. It needs to be bigger and you need to outsource to maybe maybe an agency or a PR specialist or for your business or for your brand. If in my situation, I am my business, so I would need to push me so that people bought my services. But I think there's a huge change in business from what I've seen. People realizing that you do need to be known. There's so many celebrities bringing out clothing brands, so many celebrities bringing out kids uh, prams and whatever so many celebrities doing different things they're having more success like kylie jenner because of her instagram following because people know who she is if you also are selling makeup but you've got 500 instagram followers you're not going to make the big money like kylie is so i think my my brain is now telling me that in order to have the big success people need to know who the fuck you are do you do you agree is that like obviously you're NPR, so you know that people need to know who they are of course I agree. Um, but it's about being known for the right reasons and the right thing. Yeah. So, sure, Kylie Jenner's built up a huge following and that's the basis of her brand. Um, but it's also about you can have smaller audiences, but they're the right audience. So, yeah. you know, if I look at, like, myself and my profile is done for the benefit of my business... So I'm not at a Kylie Jenner level, obviously, um, but I have maybe 35, 40,000 Twitter followers. But those followers are the right followers. It's the national media. It's influential people. It's people that I want as clients. So therefore, you know, what I want to get across on those channels is me and who I am and what I can achieve it's not about publicizing myself because i like the sound of my own voice and i try and restrain what i talk about and write to be very much beneficial to the business same as you know my my linkedin channel you know not enormous levels but i think i'm not really sure how many i've got maybe 15 20 000 followers there's a massive power if i look at the fact i can send out a message immediately over all my channels to 50,000 or so people saying what I want to say. That's my own marketing channel. You look at someone like Lord Sugar, who's built up a social media following of several million people. That's a bigger audience than every national newspaper in the country combined. But don't you think, don't you think there's a snobbery now? If you don't have X amount of Instagram followers, you're a nobody and therefore people don't want to buy from you. 
Or if you don't have, sorry, excuse my wallpaper. I've half wallpapered and I've not finished. Um, but I, oh. I definitely think now, like the world has come to a point. It's all about how many Instagram followers you got, how many of this, how many people have liked, how many people have commented. It is, I think, business has got to a point where you have to be known for your business to be successful, or you will be successful but mediocre successful. It depends what success means to you. Let's say if you want millionaire success. The amount of Instagram followers these days seems to replicate how successful people are in business. And it's I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying, have you not noticed that that's a trend, that the more followers someone has, they seem to be selling more or making more money? I could say, say that's correct, but I could also argue on the flip side, there's plenty of brands that don't have an individual figurehead that's prominent on social media, whether that's you know, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, whatever. Um, and have built their brand through having a great product or a great service. Um, to me, it's about authenticity and relevance. And I actually think the whole influencer bubble will burst at some point soon because consumers have got wise to the fact that people are being paid to promote things and say things and it doesn't feel genuine and you know, influencer marketing is, is nothing new. You know, I've been working with celebrities since the day I started in PR. And what works then is the same as what works now. A clever use of a celebrity, believability, creativity, authenticity, something that stands out, something that just feels right. And those rules haven't changed. You know, all that's happened is the channels and the way that we communicate of have built and evolved since the days when I started. Makes me very old, but pre-internet, pre-social media. So, ba so basically, ha have, uh, have a, a decent amount of followers, but do it authentically. Don't just... Do it in the right way. You know, if, if, I, if you're using your channels to add value, and that value, you know, for you could be imparting wisdom, lessons, sharing information... For other people, it can be entertainment and jokes. For other people, it, Kylie Jenner it can just be the way she looks and modelling clothes all day long. You know, everyone adds value in their own way. But what I would always say to a client is be true to what you want to be. You know, if it's my channel, no one really wants to see me modelling clothes. No one wants to see <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> no one wants to see me you know, what I'm wearing or what I've had for breakfast or what restaurants I'm going to. But I'd like to think they do want me to share my opinion on great marketing campaigns or bad marketing campaigns. They yeah. might want my opinion on people in the public eye and their commercial deals. Or you know, That's their level of interest in me. I wouldn't consider myself to be what you would call an influencer. But I would say, sounds a bit sort of, immodest but i'm influential within my area of expertise to the type of people that i'm trying to be influential to and that should be the same as anyone obviously the audiences and what they want to be influenced in is going to differ from brand to brand from person to person but you know i, I see far too many people that think you know just because there is social media and a channel whereby you can broadcast your every waking thought doesn't mean that you have to because personally i don't even give a shit 
what my own friends have for breakfast or where they eat or go on holiday. So why would I care about someone else? You know, but young people especially, they've grown up in a world of social media where they almost, you know, I look at people's Instagram stories I know them better than I know my mum and dad. I know. And to me, I don't get it. I don't get it. Just because there's a channel there doesn't mean you have to use it. Sometimes that less is more. And I will always advise clients about, you know, the moment where you stop adding insight or value, don't do it. You know, there are no rules to say you have to post five times a day. Ah, so don't share shit just for the sake of sharing. Unless it's relevant to your audience. You know, if you're well, there, yeah. There's millions of people who do care what she has for breakfast and what she wears and where she's on holiday and what restaurant she's at. For you, and maybe some people care, but I would say the average I don't person, even care. Then you know. <laughs> I so don't even care. Use your channel for where you want to add value, inspiring, yeah. educating, showing that you're a great presenter, showing that you're great at inspiring kids in school school kids you know that's what you should be talking about and i would um, i would know a bit about your personal life because i think it, they get to understand you a bit more as a person but i try and use different channels for different things so yeah. you went on twitter you wouldn't know the first thing about my personal life if you go on my instagram it's a mix of kind of work and a bit of family stuff not to the degree of what i had for breakfast but You'll see pictures of my kids or me at football or if you go on my Facebook, that's completely personal. There's no work whatsoever. You know, go on TikTok, it's an embarrassment. <laughs> I'm going to now. You just said that. I'm definitely going to Well, no, there's only two videos on it and they're just... Yeah, me and my daughter's good chat. <laughs> I've done it I more to understand it than to use it as a channel. You know, LinkedIn, you will only find work stuff about Frank, nothing else. So, you know, you do tailor your channels slightly for your, for your audience. Um, and I see a lot of people make the mistake of just replicating the same thing across every different channel, not just... Oh, yeah, that's not good clients. to do that. Yeah, uh, that's a no-no. And the benefits of each social media channel and what its purposes. So Yeah, for sure. I love that advice. I just have to say as well to the audience listening that when I uh, first came off The Apprentice, I was sharing the same post on my Instagram, Twitter, and I started to realise that actually my followers are just seeing the same thing over and over again. So it's not really worth doing that. I would disagree in saying that you're not really of an influencer status, in my opinion. you. I think anybody that has credibility is what I would class as an influencer. Someone that's credible, someone that you obviously work with some great people, some great brands. So I guess just before we kind of get off the the, the episode and we tie everything up, from a PR perspective, just so that the lines aren't blurred, because I work in social media management, I do some consulting for businesses, I help with their business development, and through their business development as a consultant I help them grow their social media channels so I'm helping them post I'm helping you know use relevant hashtags etc as a PR company I'm presuming from what you said about your views on social media your PR is that more focused at like press and TV campaigns and stuff like that as opposed to using social media to push their brand not really I mean PR is a difficult thing to explain. So 
traditionally PR would have been what you call earned media. So getting people into media, they don't have to buy ad spend against. But the world's changed and different sort of disciplines have merged together. We are a creative agency. So actually, at our heart, our whole ethos is around creating talkability. So we define talkability as the buzz that takes over and does your best marketing for you. Essentially, word of mouth. Um, And we'll always start a campaign for a client with an idea. And then how that idea comes to life can be a variety of different ways. You never think, how do we get you into the papers? We think, what's the idea? Once you've got the idea, you then look at the best routes to get it out to your market and create talkability. So sometimes that could be what you described earlier. So getting you into print on the radio, on TV. Other times it can be digital marketing and social media, and that's a huge part of our business. Sometimes it's advertising and creating ads or content that people will see, share, take a message from. It can be experiential and events. So we do a lot of events, festivals. It can be sponsorship. So there's, it can be SEO or PR SEO, which is where you sort of boost someone's profile through and search rankings. So really, you know, what we do as a company, it's almost limitless, but at the heart of it is a great idea because there is no point doing PR for something that's just going to be wallpaper and not get noticed. You want to do everything that you do. You need there to be a reaction from changing people's opinion, changing their perception, making them want to buy something, making them click on a link, making them sign up to something, go to an event. And if what you say, even if it gets published, just sort of glosses over them, it's a waste of time and a waste of a client's money. So does it have to be something... So it's obviously, when you say create an idea, they obviously already have their business or brand or let's use Sean for instance, she's got swimwear. So she's already got that. So from your perspective, you would be looking at some like maybe, I don't want to use the word garish, maybe stand outy way to capture people's attention. And then once you create that standout idea, then you decide what is the best route, whether it's radio, this, that, or the other, or how to get it. So almost then you are... You are rejuvenating and shaking up and being disruptive in their business a little bit to get them noticed. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily disruptive in terms of being unconventional, but it's taking a business or a person and looking at what is it you want people to remember? What's the takeout? What's the call to action that you want someone to make? And how are you going to achieve that? What is going to be the way that you do that? Doesn't necessarily mean being disruptive or Garish, I think was the word you used. But it- I love the word disruptive, by the way. That's a compliment. Um, I, my mentor's Rob Moore. He has the podcast, The Disruptive Entrepreneur. So I use disruptive with the most love. I think entrepreneurship should be disruptive. It's um, not bad. Um, yeah. A lot of what we do is disruptive. It's working for challenger brands that don't necessarily have the same budgets as the big multinationals, kind of what I call big fish. Um, so you do have to think differently and stand out. You can't do the same as everyone else because otherwise it's a waste of time. But sometimes it's just being clever and just crafting a message or a visual or an imagery. There's, there's different triggers that we 
play around with to come up with a concept that has talkability within it. So sometimes it's looking at the imagery, sometimes it's looking at sort of the zeitgeist, what's going on in the world and actually trying to predict where the world's going to be in six months' time so you can sort of be on the, the curve. So, you know, it's, it's looking at what the media want to write about. You know, everyone thinks they've got a story, something unique. They all want to say like 10 things about themselves and it's about how do you distill that into the one thing that's going to make a difference? Um, yeah. But sometimes it is being disruptive and unconventional. We've done many, many campaigns that completely broke the mould of the industry that we were working in. Um, but other times it's, it's, it's about being smart with your messaging and figuring out the one or two things that you want to say, not trying to say everything. So that at the end of the campaign, you're not just sort of a name check that people can't remember. Oh, who did that survey? Who was that research by? Who was that person I saw that meaningless quote on? You need them to remember who the brand was, who the person was, what they were saying, what they do. And as I said earlier, you know, what is, there's always got to be a call to action, never doing PR just for the sake of PR. If you look at someone like a Lord Sugar, what you will see is there's always a purpose to when he's done an interview. It's not just for the sake of it. You might not really understand what that purpose is because it could be something that's, you know, a bit more complicated. But often it's as simple as he's there to promote one of his businesses. Um, Because otherwise, what's the point? We could all talk all day long. You know, why am I talking to you? Waffle. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, we uh, could. People listen to this, thought, I talked a bit of sense. I'll look up who he is and maybe he'll do it for me. That's why I'm doing it, not because I like the sound of my own voice and, you know, doing it for the sake of it. You said... You, I'm going to pick up on that. You said that quite a few times. People like the sound of their own voice. I'm sensing maybe you've dealt with a few egos in your lifetime. Have you? Yeah, of course. There's, there's <laughs> You're like, I don't, want to, I don't want to like the sound of my own voice. I can imagine in your industry, there are a lot of egos that do love the sound of their own voice. How do you overcome that? Just don't work with them or just bite your tongue? or Generally, what I found in business is you kind of attract like-minded people Um, and I'll always try and be honest to people in terms of what I think we can do and what's right for them and what you tend to find if people don't like the advice you're giving them and don't want to hear what you're saying you don't end up working together and that's fine Mm -hmm. Um, from a personal perspective I'm not into people just wanting to be famous to be famous And there's plenty of brilliant publicists and PR people that are really good at that job and love it. But that's not my strength or interest. So, you know, I'm never shy to sort of say, look, not quite right for me, but I'll recommend someone who would be able to do a great job. So, you know, actually, I, I say it's weird, but it's not that weird. I really like... 99.9% 99.9% of my clients. And oh, well, that's good. They'll be glad to hear that. <laughs> but it's not always the case. You know, the, the going back to the whole Frank thing is, I never wanted, it sounds like a real cliche, but you want to be partners with your clients. You want to be on a journey together, help them through the shit, celebrate the good times. You don't want to be a supplier. You know, mm. I don't like people that, 
disrespectful to me, the agency, my staff. You want people that really value your expertise and don't take advantage of your time or your good nature or just the fact they're paying you every month does not give them an excuse to treat you like shit. And we don't Hallelujah. have that. Yes. We don't have that because those sort of clients, we don't win. Like It's kind of like a natural selection, if you yeah. like. And as a result, we've got amazing clients, like both in terms of the businesses they represent and the people within them. Um, and that's because they've seen something in us that they like. And we've seen something in them that we like. And that's why you know, most of the business we get, you know, there is some form of selection process, even if it's not a formal pitch. They're yeah. a chat two or three other people. And you, know, you don't win everything, but generally the stuff we don't win is because we probably weren't the best fit for them in the first place. So that's fine. And you're, and, and you're 20 years in now, so you're not needing to beg like Lord Sugargate all those years ago. Now it's like, you know what, I'll work with who I want to work with and I won't work with who I'm not feeling. So I love yeah, that. You know what, I still, if I really want something and there are businesses you really want to work with, I'm not big enough to say that we wouldn't sort of, I mean, maybe not beg on our hands and knees, but... I would but beg, don't worry, I would beg. <laughs> on yeah, my hands and knees. I really, I really want to work on their business because it's an exciting challenge or a great brand and I know we could do a good job. You know, you should never take no for an answer if you really believe that you're the right person for the job. Um, but at the same time, we are fortunate. We don't need, you know, we don't need to work for anyone and everyone that comes our way. And I think we've been able to build a business by working with clients that have allowed us to do great work, which has brought in new good, good clients. I think if you just work for anyone, it's hard to sort of keep going and your staff become demotivated and you don't do good work. So it yeah. sort of works to have, but I, I, you know, everyone takes the piss out of me on the, management board because I find it hard to say no just when someone is saying they really want to work for you with you I find it hard to sort of say no but well yeah well because that's that's the entrepreneurial side isn't it you're like oh yeah I want that opportunity so I saw on your website before before we get onto the yes no game um I saw on your website that you've got three offices so one's in Sydney is that right that's right yeah so how did so, that come about? So branching out like that, and why Sydney? It was really just an opportunity. So we had a girl who worked for us who was great. She was Australian. She was in England. She was about to hit her thirtieth birthday, and I think she just wanted to go home. Really, um, so she handed in her notice, and we thought, "Don't really want to lose you. You're bloody good at what you do," and we said what would you think about setting up Frank in Sydney, like when you go there? And that was how it started. So it was about the person. Um, oh, amazing. And that's been going just over 10 years. Um, has, has done brilliantly well, actually. I mean, they've got amazing clients there, done brilliant, brilliant work. Um, so that's great. And then we've got an office in Manchester as well, which actually started for the same reason we had a guy 
who's actually Welsh but was from Manchester that came down to London, thought the streets were paved with gold, realised he didn't really like London. So we did the same with him. Um, And we set up Manchester. But actually one of the benefits that we've seen with that office is I think when you work in London, you can get caught in a bit of a London bubble of people talk about diversity in terms of like sex, race, education. But actually, to me, there's all those things are obviously important, but it's also a way you think creatively and you can, you know, be a Shoreditch twat and think, you know, Everyone has got a beard and rolled up trousers and skinny oh, jeans. I love that. I lived there yeah. for eight years. And as much as I miss the, the hustle and bustle and being surrounded by people, there are a lot of Shoreditch twats around. Yeah, it's just a London way of thinking. And you don't realise necessarily that there is a whole country out there that doesn't think like that and is, you know, not super trendy and eating in the latest pop-up diners and smoking roll-up cigarettes and what and that's what having an office in Manchester has allowed us to do like be much more diverse in the way we think creatively and also employ some great people because not everyone wants to live in London so there's all this talent up north that didn't previously have it I mean there were other agencies but they would have loved to work at Frank, but didn't want to be in London, and now they can work for Frank in Manchester. So that's been been really good, actually. And, and you know, as I think we set up in Manchester in 2012, so it's about eight years old, but um, what's happened in that time is clients really don't care where their agency is based. And, yeah. you know, often... Well, we work with clients all around the world, so that office has clients in Canada, America, all over the place. And, and no one cares that they're in Manchester, whereas it was probably a bit more of a barrier eight years ago. People would say, yeah, but I want a London agency because yeah. London would be better or they're closer to the media was the other thing you used to hear. Well, obviously now, you know, there's a whole media hub in Manchester and it's a real centre for media. But more importantly, clients... As long as they've got great people, they don't care. Well, we did have an office in New York, which was less of a success because not everything. Uh, no, that's so. good. But at least you're, yeah, you're honest about that. Oh, well, congratulations! Do you know what? I could literally speak to you for hours. I'm so intrigued, and I don't. I've never worked in PR. You know, I worked in finance, and then I set up my own business. So I studied law degree. I find it really intriguing, and also I love a story that's got longevity. And you started 20 years ago. Lord Sugar was one of your first clients. I mean, what a great story. Um, I'm really excited that you said thank you. Uh, you said yes to coming on my podcast so thank you very much um i always end my podcast with two questions so uh i'm conscious of time because i know you only had until well three o'clock so i'm sorry we've gone over um but i have two questions if you don't mind the first one will be um we'll play the yes no game have you played this with your kids before where you can't say yes or no correct let's play have you played it or not Am I playing it now? <laughs> You're not playing it now. Do you know what? It's so funny because obviously people that I speak to, most of them are entrepreneurs. So they're already waiting to be caught out. Like, are, are, we, are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. Don't worry. Um, okay. 
So we are going to start paying. Are you ready? Do you need a moment to prepare? I don't. <laughs> good. Okay. So let's get started. And by the way, if you're really good, I do speed up a little bit to try and catch you out. Okay. On your mark. Oh, very good. On your marks, get set, go. Are you a good singer? I'm a terrible singer. <laughs> do you like country music? I don't really like country music. Do you know how to spell necessary? N-E-C-E-S-S-A-R-Y, I think. Well done. Do you take the shampoos and conditioners from hotels? Of course. <laughs> Have you ever stolen a street sign? Probably. Do you ever count your steps when you walk? My phone does. Ever got a speeding ticket? Lots of them. Can you curl your tongue? No. Oh! <laughs> You're so close! Because you didn't want to curl your tongue, that's why. You were like, damn it, I'm not doing that. <laughs> oh, you I'm were saying, you know what? Okay, I'm normally you, very good at that game. You did so well. You had two questions left. Where have you ever borrowed something and not returned it? And uh, have you ever clicked terms and conditions and not read them? Obviously. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. That was great. So close. It's okay. No judgment here. Okay, final question. I've let you down. We'll get you back on again in six months' time, and you've got time to work on it, so don't worry. Um, okay, final question. If you could be an animal, what animal would you be and why? Wow. Um, hard one. It's a hard one. Really, really hard. Um, maybe some sort of endangered species, because it's only really when things become endangered that you fully appreciate them and realise their value and what the world would be like without them. That was quite deep. That was good. Very relevant for this time yeah, as well. I would say dog and cat. That would be too obvious. Well, but I um, love them. So oh. I'm a, well, um, I think maybe a white rhino. Nice. So, a bit flash. No, not flash. Endangered species. Um, <laughs> so that's why. Oh, that's a great answer. Do you know what? This has been very, very enjoyable. I could speak to you for hours. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. So many people are going to learn so much about PR. I feel like it was a great episode because we were able to, I was trying to bounce back, you know, what I thought a business needed and you have some really strong views on what, what needs to happen. And I'm going to relook how I post on social media after this conversation and realize that no one... No one gives a shit about my breakfast. If there's one thing I've taken from this, and it'll be in the show notes, no one gives a shit about your breakfast. What Thank did you, you have for breakfast? Uh, crunching up cornflakes. No one cares about that. No one At least <laughs> taste, then you can be a proper influencer. <laughs> Thank you so much. Please stay safe during this time. I hope business keeps thriving and we'll stay connected. Thank you very much. 